Well, good morning, everyone. I am so glad to see you here today, to have you with us. Just a few things for you to know. Um, sadly, due to current events, yes, after speaking with the elders, we will be going online for the next number of weeks. Um, we would much rather meet in person. And yet, in all of this, we know that the Lord is sovereign and he is in control. And so, uh, in the midst of all of this, I'm hoping and praying that as God's people, that we can show the sufficiency of God in this season of life. Furthermore, um, our hope and our plan is to next week to begin to live stream our services. We have not been able to do that up to this point, but uh, thank you to Elon Musk. We're hoping that next week we're able to start doing that. Um, furthermore, I want to thank you for your continuous generosity through this time and this season. Uh, there's so much we would like to just hang on to because the uncertainty of the times around us, and yet you continue to give. And we just thank God for your trust in him and, and giving back to the Lord what he has given us. And so thank you for that. And I also want you to know that you are loved. We love you as a church. And even though most of us are new to one another, know that you are loved. Know that the Lord loves you perfectly. And so we're glad that you're here with us today. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to encourage you to open up to James. The book of James, the epistle of James, known as the general epistle of of James in the New Testament. We've just spent all this time in, in the Old Testament in the book of Judges, and it's like a breath of fresh air coming back into the New Testament. And if you've been with us throughout this, the uh, series in Judges, you understand why I, I say that. Now, as we've gone through the book of Judges, we saw how wicked even those who claim to know God can become. And what becomes evident, or what became evident through us through the book of Judges, is that we need a power beyond our own ability if we want to remain faithful to the Lord. And here's the good news. God has provided precisely what we need through Jesus Christ to accomplish that purpose. You see, Jesus not only paid for our sins, he not only purchased our forgiveness, but through his divine power, he has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness so that... We don't keep repeating that sin cycle that we saw in the book of Judges. And so now we're jumping into the epistle of James, which lays out in very plain language what real faith in Jesus Christ looks like. The theme of the epistle of James is simply this, real faith. Encouraging God's people to act like God's people. And as we get into this epistle, 
I want to take the very first sermon of this series to take a look at the life of the person of James himself and to see how faith had an impact upon him. So if you have your Bibles open, James chapter 1, and we're only going to look at verse 1 today. James 1 verse 1, and we read this, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. We want to stop right there. Because I think as we get to know who James is, we will begin to understand the epistle of James. So who exactly is James? Now there is a number of Jameses mentioned in the Bible, but this one is the half-brother of Jesus. He is the biological son of, of Mary and Joseph, and Jesus is his older brother. Jesus is the firstborn of Mary and his, if you will, adopted father, Joseph. But Jesus had younger siblings, and we don't pay much attention to them throughout the scriptures. But in Matthew 13, 55, we're, we're given some of the names of his siblings, namely his brothers James, whose real name was actually Jacobus, but we'll just go with James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, who also wrote the epistle of Jude. And we also see that Jesus had several sisters, but not mentioned by name. But now, think for a moment what it would have been like to have been a brother of Jesus. Just think that through for a moment. What would it have been like to have Jesus as an older brother? He's marrying Joseph's first child, and he is literally perfect. Literally. Think of how this would have impacted the rest of his so-called earthly siblings, the rest of the kids in his family. You see, this is the one time in human history where parents could rightly and properly say, you need to be like your older brother. Now, growing up, I'm the second oldest of eight kids. I have an older brother. And my older brother was very quick always to please and honor my parents. But me, on the other hand, I was the exact opposite. I was stubborn. I was resistant. I was rebellious. And I've often referred to myself as the black sheep of the family. And yes, my parents rightly had just cause occasionally to suggest that I needed to be more like my older brother. But in my sinfulness... The more I watched my brother honor my parents, the more I felt this resistance within me. The more I felt like I did not want to be like him, the more I rebelled. You see, my response when I watched my brother 
is the perfect expression of what we see in the scriptures in Galatians chapter 5, 17, where we read, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. And this, this is exactly what was happening in my life, even as a young child. I was a slave to my flesh. And as I watched my brother doing what honored God by honoring my parents, the more I rebelled and the more I had a disdain and a dislike for him. You see, it was my fleshly response. It was sin on my part. I was a slave to my flesh. That was my experience. But my brother wasn't perfect. Now, think back to the second oldest child in Jesus' family, his brother James. He wasn't perfect like his older brother Jesus. Imagine his shortcomings and how his sins would have been all the more evident in comparison to his perfect older brother who was God. Needless to say, if James was anything like you and me, he likely would have struggled as the brother of Jesus. Now what's really intriguing and interesting is that we find out in scriptures that it reveals to us that James was not a part of Jesus' inner circle. Many siblings still maintain a very close relationship and do a lot of things together. But in the, what scriptures reveals that James was not that close to his brother Jesus. He wasn't part of his inner circle. He was not even one of Jesus' disciples when his ministry began. And in fact, if you were to read John chapter 7, and particularly in verse 5, there we read that not even his own brothers believed in him, meaning in Jesus. And we actually get the sense, if you get the fuller view of John chapter 7, that there may have actually been a tension in the family towards Jesus. Now, although Jesus had a disciple by the name of James, James, his brother, was not. In fact, James, we're told here in John 7, doesn't even believe who Jesus claims he is. And at one point in Jesus' ministry, we read that his own family went out to seize Jesus, believing that he was officially out of his mind. So I think it's fair to say, at least to a degree, that James struggled with who his brother Jesus claimed to be. And in fact, if you've ever paid attention, if you've noticed, we notice his glaring absence at Jesus' crucifixion. Now, in those days, the custom of that day was after the father of the family had died, the oldest son would become the head of the family, taking care of the mother and the estate. 
But again, we see this, this different approach while, while Jesus was hanging on the cross. Jesus doesn't hand his mother over to be cared for by James, but in fact puts her in the care of his disciple John. Furthermore, James is nowhere to be found when Jesus is taken off of the cross and then prepared and laid in the tomb. And yet, and yet, here we have the epistle of James, the brother of Jesus. So when did things change? How did James end up writing an epistle? Well, we can begin to piece things together just by combing through scripture and furthermore, some of recorded history. But staying within scripture for a moment here, we we head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 7, where the apostle Paul is talking or affirming the resurrection of Jesus through eyewitnesses. And we read Paul saying that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive at that time, though some have already fallen asleep. Now listen to verse 7. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Then he appeared to James. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to James privately, his brother, on his own. And it seems that that private meeting with the resurrected Jesus, birthed faith in James, real faith. And by the time Pentecost, as we now know it, rolls around, we find James now sitting with the disciples in the upper room. He's come to believe and submitted himself to the reality that, yes, indeed, his brother Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And we see the change in James's heart in the opening words of this epistle that he ends up writing in which he refers to him in verse 1 as James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just want to focus on that word, that opening statement here. James, a servant. That word servant is the word doulos or the word slave. Yes, we like to use the word servant because of the negative connotation on the word slave and rightfully so. But here in the scriptures, that's the word that James uses. James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a slave is someone who's owned by, whose life and purpose is determined by his master. As I already said, the, the word slave has a very negative connotation, and rightfully so. 
the evil horrors attributed to the hands of slave owners in human history deserves and demands the righteous judgment of God. But here's the thing. To be, excuse me, to be a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ is the sweetest blessing anyone will ever know. And James believed it and was not ashamed of it. The reason James referred to himself as a slave of the Lord, Jesus, he also, he also elevates Jesus to the status of Lord, is because he understands and he believes not just who Jesus is, but what it was that Jesus accomplished through his death. You see, he understood what Paul later shared with the Corinthians and the Romans. That is that you are not your own. Because you were bought at a Christ. By, you were bought at a price. Sorry. By Christ. You were redeemed by Christ. You were purchased by him. And in fact, even to the Galatians, when Paul writes to the Galatians, he, refers, he makes this statement that Christ redeemed or he purchased us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Well, then the question is that needs to be answered, what is the curse of the law? And the curse of the law is this, the soul that sins, it must die. And what do what does scriptures tell us about our own state? That all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All of us. And so therefore, the law of God, the curse of the law is this. The soul that sins must die. You see, the law of God demands perfection. Whoever does not keep the whole law perfectly is cursed and condemned to die. And no amount of good works that you do can overcome the curse. Because grace and forgiveness do not come through the law. But the good news is that we have been purchased, redeemed by Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.19 that we were redeemed or bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So you see, being a slave to the Lord Jesus is not like what we've witnessed at the hands of wicked men in human history. As a slave of the Lord Jesus, yes, it may result in hardships in this life as we're experiencing right now. But at the same time, it provides or he provides for us the power of God. To live a godly life in spite of our circumstances. You see, he not only forgave us our sins, but he also, through him, we have the grace of God that covers all of our failures. He's given us the gift of eternal life. And he's poured into us the all-satisfying love of God, which we're told in Romans 8 that we cannot be separated from. 
So the question you and I need to ask ourselves today is this. Have I become a slave of Christ? Do I understand what it means? Is it real of me? Have you embraced the joy of being a servant of Jesus Christ? Now when we look back to James, James's faith and his servanthood have left its mark on the people on his day and certainly left his mark on the people throughout time since then and on us as well. And when we look into the life of James, we see that after the apostle Peter moved on from the Jerusalem church to go plant churches in other areas, James now becomes the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. And Paul later refers to James as a pillar of the church in Galatians 5, 9. And you can see James's wisdom and leadership in, on display in Acts chapter 15 when he writes that letter to the Galatian churches. And then in the years to come, while James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, severe persecution fell upon the church, and many of the believers who were of Jewish descent scattered and became known as those of the, of the great diaspora, those of the dispersion who were dispersed because of persecution. And as they went, they went proclaiming the gospel. Now add to that within Jerusalem and in that region during those years, there a great famine fell upon the region leading to great poverty. Not just for believers, but for unbelievers as well. But add to them, to these two together now, not just the poverty through this famine, but also the persecution. And it's a very dire situation. But it's in those years that James, who one, at one time did not believe that Jesus is Lord, became known as James the Just because of his godly character. His life of righteousness in spite of what's happening around him. And his unyielding, listen, this is, a, this is something we don't hear of much, but his unyielding pursuit of and ability to achieve peace between Christians and non-Christians in his community. James also became known as Camel Knee James. Because of his relentless prayer life on his knees as he prayed for Christians and non-Christians alike. James was also instrumental in transitioning believers from Old Testament practices and self-imposed legalism into the freedom and the liberty of the gospel. Now, we've been working through a transition here at Redemption Bible Chapel St. Thomas in the last two years. But if there ever was a difficult transition to work through, it was the one here in Jerusalem, and it came at a great cost. You see, transitioning people from deep-rooted and long-lasting or standing Old Testament religious practices to faith in Jesus... And then the human traditions that became religious legalism, transitioning them out of that to faith in Jesus, divided the Jewish people, it divided the city of Jerusalem, and it divided even families. 
And yet James was instrumental in leading people into the glorious freedom and the liberty of the gospel. But James' love and compassion for the unbelieving was as great, we are told in church history, as his love for the saved, for those who did believe. He didn't look down his nose at those who didn't believe in Jesus Christ. You see, at one point, James had not believed. He understood what it was like to be one of them. In fact, James became so greatly respected that even some of the leaders in Jerusalem came to believe in Jesus Christ. And of course, this upset a lot of other high-ranking officials, including the high priest who had a great hatred and disdain for James and accused him of breaking the law of Moses and therefore had him pushed off the very same pinnacle of the temple which Jesus was tempted on by Satan himself. And even though he's pushed off the pinnacle of the temple, he didn't die when he hit the ground. In fact, his faith had so transformed him, his faith in Jesus Christ, that he got up on his knees after he had fallen. And in compassion for his detractors, he prayed the very words of his brother Jesus that he had prayed on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. In anger, those that stood by began stoning James, but it wasn't until a man with a fuller's club, a launderer, came up, rushed up, and hit him on his head with a club that he finally died. Now, one historical record indicates, and I couldn't find this verified by any other historians except this one, that James had become so respected in Jerusalem by both believers and unbelievers that when word got out in Jerusalem that James had been martyred, that it resulted in a riot, not by believers, but by unbelievers, and a rebellion against the Jewish leadership. Oh, that we would have that sort of impact in our community, amen? Now, before his death, James wrote this epistle to the Jewish Christians who had been scattered because of persecution. And it's an epistle of practical Christian wisdom that helps us understand what real faith looks like and how it's lived out. Now, James is not writing to a particular church addressing a particular problem. He's writing an epistle of general knowledge of what real faith lived out looks like. James reveals in this letter that real faith in Jesus Christ isn't some abstract, invisible belief. Real faith is the life-changing, 
God-honoring, Christ-exalting, truth-affirming, community-impacting, visible reality of the love of God poured into our hearts. So as we get into the general epistle of James, there's a lot of wisdom in these five short chapters. It can be considered the outworking of the wisdom of Proverbs and the Sermon of the Mount clothed in Christian garb. So as we get into this, over the next several months, there's a question that I would like for you to join me in to reflect upon. Does the faith that I possess bear evidence that I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is the introduction to the letter of James. Now, as we think about this already, as we begin to meditate upon this, one of the first things that arises within our minds and hearts is this, but you don't understand my situation. You don't understand how hard it is. You don't understand how weak I am. You're right, I don't. I just know my own weaknesses. But Christ knows and he knows fully and perfectly well. And the reality is we are all weak. But let me encourage you in your weakness. That when we are weak. If our faith is real. Christ is strong. And he has given to us everything we need. So that we might live life. In godliness. Is your faith real? Are you a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? As we begin this series, let's close this morning through prayer. Father, when we look at the life of James... As we begin to look into this epistle, Lord, we see our own lives reflected in this. That we did not have faith at first. But you, by your mercy, shone the light of the glory of Christ into our hearts. So that we might behold his beauty. That we might behold his worthiness that we might behold all he is to us and through us and for us. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you do not leave us on our own. We thank you, Lord, that faith comes with grace so that when we are weak, you are made strong through us. So, Father, we just now pray that our faith would be revealed as real, real, Lord. And that we would find great joy 
proclaiming that we are servants and slaves of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be evident even in the season that we experience in this time. So be our strength, Lord, in our time of weakness. In Jesus' name, amen.